Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. Well, as you know, we've been going through a series with the junior high students called What is the Gospel? And over the last couple months, we have learned what the good news of Jesus is. And it starts with God. That God created and owns all things. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God created man in his image to reflect his glory And God, being the creator and owner of all things, he has expectations for those who he created, and that is called his law. And so God gave us his law, which can be summed up by Jesus in Matthew 22, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments are an expression of what God expects of his creation to live for his glory but as we know we learned that we have failed to meet God's expectations and that's called sin we've missed the mark of God's expectations we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God we've broken God's law and the consequences of sin is eternal judgment in hell For the wages of sin, the payment of sin, what our sin earns is death, eternal death. And that was the fourth point that we learned. But, but, it's not just all bad news. Though we deserve hell for the lives we have lived, Jesus, God in his love, sent his son Jesus, and Jesus willingly came to earth, veiled in flesh, humbled himself, And lived the life that we should have lived. He obeyed God's law perfectly. He did the job that we were supposed to do. He obeyed it, his God's law perfectly, without sin. But Christ, or I should say, and at the same time, though innocent, though perfectly innocent, he was nailed to a criminal's cross. He bore the penalty of, Not only did he obey the law, which we should have obeyed, but he took our penalty for our sin upon himself as our substitute. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so on the cross, Jesus, their suffering, yes, and it was horrific suffering, but what was the most horrific suffering of all was the bearing of our sin and the absorbing, or I should say, exhausting of God's wrath upon himself. Jesus took the hell, the eternal hell that we deserved upon himself. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, he exchanges his righteousness for our sin. And Jesus didn't remain dead, but three days later, as we're going to rejoice this next or this Sunday, Easter Sunday, Jesus rose again from the dead. And he's alive. He's the king of kings. He defeated sin, death, and the devil. And he calls all men and women to repent and believe the gospel. To repent and to believe. And so last week we looked at the question of 
with this good news, the best news in the world that I hope every junior higher here would come to love and adore and treasure. But the question is, how does this good news become ours? How is it? How does this good news not just be good news to, for my neighbor or my friend, but for me? And the two instruments that God uses or that Jesus says in his first sermon in Mark 1.15, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. And so last week we looked at what true saving faith, true saving belief is. And if you remember, I preached on cats, uh, K-A-T, true saving faith, um, uh, has a knowledge of what Jesus has done. It's based in content. And then A, we agree with it. But that's not enough. We must trust. We must personally place our trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross for us to receive salvation. Faith is the hand that receives the gift. But faith has a twin brother. (laughs) And yes, faith uh, faith is the, the twin brother that comes first. But right after, and immediately, his twin brother is repentance. Where there is no repentance, there is no salvation. Because when we believe, we also repent. And when we repent, we also believe. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, is repentance. What is repentance? Well, repentance is a gospel medicine, (laughs) Thomas Watson says. Like saving faith... Repentance is a gift from God. Did you know that? You can't muster up repentance. You can't go and find it. You can't go and do it. It must be given by God. And when God gives repentance, there are signs and markers of what that true repentance is. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. God grants repentance. And this gift of repentance is applied to the heart of the sinner. You see, it must repentance must take place first in the heart. Why? Because the Bible says that those who do not have Jesus, who are sinners, lost in their sin, have a heart of stone, which is a metaphor to describe the heart condition of man. Their hearts are dead in sin, dead to God. And this is why the promise of the gospel is that when God saves a sinner... He does so by drawing a sinner to himself through the hearing of the gospel. And when he does that, when that happens, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit makes sinners alive in Christ. He recreates their heart. He makes them alive. This is the miracle of the new birth. It's the miracle of salvation. And when that happens, when God, through the Holy Spirit, regenerates the heart of man, God gives the sinner at that moment saving faith and repentance. Now all of you, or, or all of what I've described regarding God's saving grace happens from God's point of view. But from our point of view, we have to ask the question, what is the sign? What, how do we know we have genuine repentance? How do we know if God has granted me repentance? I ask this question because I know a lot of people who have gone to camp, who have been in our youth group, who go to church, or even grow up with their parents, and they, they've confessed their sins. Maybe they've cried out about their sin who say they've repented only to find out later that they are still living in sin. They love their sin. Maybe they confessed because they wanted to get out of trouble. Maybe it's because that's what everyone else did. Maybe they just wanted to get guilt, the guilt off their chest. 
or because they were ashamed. But what does true repentance look like? That's the question I want to explore in our time. The gospel medicine called repentance has six ingredients, and only six ingredients. If you miss any of these ingredients, if you add uh, to the ingredients like your own good works— we don't have repentance. If you take away any of these repent or any of these ingredients to this gospel medicine, you don't have repentance. And so what are these six ingredients? Let's walk through them together. The first thing in genuine repentance is the sinner must have a, his sight of sin. He must see his sin. There must be sight of sin. Repentance doesn't take place in the heart until it takes place in the eyes. (laughs) You must see your sin. In other words, how can you repent of sin if you don't know that you're in sin or see your sin? Those who don't know Jesus are blinded by their sin. They, They can't see their sin for what it truly is. Therefore, there's no need to repent. Therefore, there's no need for salvation because they're perfect, right? But when Jesus calls us to repent, part of that, what that means to repent is to recognize, acknowledge, to see your sin. I remember a story of an older godly man who used to shepherd me, and he was telling a story of how his son, he had a pretty bad temper, and he would always throw fits and make a scene in his house, and he tried to shepherd him. He would sit him down, and he would discipline him, but his son just could not see his sin until one time he videotaped him. As he was throwing a fit, and when he sat down with his son to discipline him, he showed him the video, and his son was embarrassed. He finally saw what his sin looked like. He finally saw the ugliness of sin. Now, many of you junior hires, you young men, you're handsome young men, and and, uh, young ladies, you are beautifully and wonderfully made, but when you sin... There is an ugliness there that you must see. Sin makes us ugly. Because sin is ugly. We must first see our sin. We must recognize our sin. If we don't do this, then we won't repent. Luke 15, 17, the prodigal son, he squandered all his father's money. He's off in a distant land, and he's now eating pig slop because he's been hired out to pigs. He's run out of money, and it says in Luke 15, 17, but when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? When he, came, he, he, when he finally came to the realization and he finally saw him, his sin, then his heart began to turn. Repentance began a work there, began to work in him. So the first thing is you must see your sin. The second thing, the second ingredient is sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. So a sight, you must see it, recognize, and then there's a sorrowful heart towards sin. Remember, repentance doesn't take place in the heart until it takes place in the eyes. And when your eyes see your sin, they begin to pour forth tears of sorrow. Have you ever cried over your sin? Psalm 38, 18, the the psalmist says, I confess my iniquity and I am sorrowful for my sin. Now, I must give you a word about this because you can be sorrowful for the wrong reasons, right? (laughs) You can be sorrowful, right, because you got caught, because you're afraid of the punishment, 
right? Because you're not getting away with your sin, and so you're sorrowful for the wrong reasons. This is what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. You're sorrowful because the punishment, not because you sinned against a holy God. You're not sorrowful because of the ugliness of your sin and because it's against God, but because you simply got caught. I remember as a kid, right, as an example of worldly sorrow, when I got in trouble and I knew that I was going to get a spanking and my dad was going to be coming home to lovingly do that, to discipline me, there would be times when I would try to manipulate my mom or my dad by making those googly googly eyes, right, by fake crying. Even when I was getting spanked after, you know, <laughs> right at the beginning, I would I would scream out and cry as if to get out of more punishment. The reason why I did that was to manipulate them, and hopefully they see my tears and say, "Okay, he's got his he he learned his lesson." But it was all manipulation. It wasn't true sorrow for sin. It was just a sorrow that I was trying to manipulate my parents with. You see, there's such thing as worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And godly sorrow shows itself when your heart cries. Your heart cries. The tears that pour forth from your eyes come from your heart because you broke God's precious, holy law. And so you must see your sin and feel sorrow for sin. And then the third ingredient is confession of sin. Confession of sin. You must see your sin, feel sorrow for sin, and then confess your sin. Repentance starts with the eyes but then it moves to the tongue where we acknowledge with our words our wrongdoing. When we sin against the Lord or against someone else, it's not enough to feel sorry, right? It's not enough to feel sorrow in your heart. But the Lord calls us to confess with our words, to use our lips to acknowledge our sin, to confess it. In fact, David said this was the key ingredient to his repentance in Psalm 32.4 after he had sinned against Bathsheba, committing adultery and murder. He says this, I acknowledge my sin. I saw my sin. I acknowledge my sin to you, O Lord. And I, I had no power and I did not cover my iniquity. So I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In a lot of ways, I was trained as as a young kid by my parents that whenever I sinned against my siblings, against my parents, or against someone else, it wasn't enough just to feel bad, just to feel sorrow for it. But every time that happened, and I, 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 I was called to confess or to apologize for what I did. And my parents trained me to use the words, not just, Sorry, but I was wrong for this. Fill in the blank. I was wrong for talking back to you, Mom. Will you please forgive me? I was acknowledging the specific sin in my life. True confession is always specific about their sin. But as you all know, there's also such thing as a false confession that isn't from the heart, right? You've been in this situation with your siblings, Right? You're still angry about your sin. You're still angry of, of being wronged. And so when you you go to make it right, you go to apologize. Instead of saying, I was wrong for this, will you please forgive me? It's more like you look them in the eyes and you're like, sorry. I'm sorry. Like that's all you say. 
sorry. <laughs> you know, you see little kids do this all the time, but I've seen, I, I, I've been tempted to do this in, in regular relationships. You're not really sorry. You're just saying the words, but you don't mean it from the heart. This is not true confession. True confession comes from the heart. It acknowledges the specific sin and it confesses with your tongue. So when you sin against the Lord, do not you there is no repentance until there is an, an acknowledging and a confession in your heart as you pray quietly or out loud, a confession of sin before God. And I would just recommend praying out loud. And so that's the third ingredient. We have sight for sin, sorrow for sin, and now con- and confession of sin. Now the fourth ingredient is shame. Shame of sin. See, repentance starts in the eyes. It moves to the tongue and works its way down to the heart. Have you ever been embarrassed before? Have you ever been maybe called out in class or in front of your friends, or you just weren't ready for something. You remember that moment? Remember how your face probably started to blush? Maybe you tried to hide your face, or you put on your hood, or you turned your head. You just had to get out of the situation. You felt ashamed or embarrassed. I remember one time in my life that I got caught cheating on a test at school. And it wasn't like the teacher found out later, but I got caught in the middle of the test, in the middle of the class, in front of all the students. I'll never forget that feeling of shame and embarrassment. And even to this day, it irks me. I'll have nightmares about it. <laughs> because I was so wrong in that moment, and I knew I was wrong. In the same way, when we repent, there should be a sense of shame for our sin. If we don't feel ashamed for our sin, then I would say that we don't truly understand it or recognize it, right? Because if we truly recognize the heinousness, the wickedness, the evilness of our sin, I think there would be a little bit of shame for it. Why? Because our sin, not only is it seen by our friends and our parents, but it's seen by God, the all-seeing God, and it was against Him. Ezra 9.6 captures this idea of being ashamed over sin. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. There should be a sense of shame when you repent. Not a shame that leads to utter despair, but but a shame that leads you back to Jesus. This is one of the ingredients of repentance. And so we see those four ingredients, and now we come to the fifth ingredient, which then is hatred for sin. Hatred for sin. When I think about what happened in front of that class, when I got, when I feel shame for my sin, for what I did, I hate that story. I hate that I have to tell that story. We know that true repentance is taking place when you find yourself loathing, 
hating, and even being righteously angry over your sin. What are some things that you hate in this life? How about this? What kind of food do you hate? That like if you eat it or see someone eating it, it makes you just want to vomit. <laughs> this last week, uh, Caitlin made some sweet and sour chicken, and it was uh, just a meal out of it was frozen chicken. We throw it, we threw it in the oven, and I'm eating it. it was It was great. And uh, as I'm eating it, she's done. She's just sitting on the couch. I feel something hard, right? And I bite down on the chicken. Now I I know that it was just part of the chicken. It's nothing, nothing gross or anything like that. But I know that <laughs> stuff like this makes Caitlin sick. And so I was joking and I said, Caitlin, I, I think I just bit into the beak of a chicken. <laughs> There's a beak in my chicken. It wasn't true. It was just a joke. But immediately, immediately she started to gag. Immediately, she started to feel queasy. Immediately, she started to feel sick. And I just kept going with the joke until I had to stop because <laughs> it was hilarious. I was only kidding, but it's a good example of her immediate reaction to that was a sickness in her stomach. It was a hatred. She wanted to leave the room. And that's a good example of how we should view our sin. We hate it. We loathe it. It makes us sick. We see the ugliness for what it is. We see the distortion for what it is. It no longer is pleasing to our eyes. We want to flee from it. Ezekiel 36, 31 says this, God talking to his people. He says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Charles Spurgeon says this, you want to hate your sin? You want to loathe it? Then look to the cross and see your bloody, battered Savior who can't even be recognized. Hanging there, you see the disgustingness of your sin in that moment. The brutality of it. Look to the cross, Spurgeon says, and hate your sin. Why? Because your sin nailed your beloved friend to the cross. You want to hate your sin, you must think upon what it did to Jesus because your sin nailed Jesus to the cross. This is the fifth ingredient. Now, if you have a sight for sin, a sorrow for sin, a confession of sin, a shame of sin, and a hatred of sin, but you don't have this last ingredient, you don't have repentance. This is one of the most important parts, and this is the last ingredient, turning from sin. You must turn from your sin. You must leave your sin. You must forsake your sin. You see, repentance starts with the eyes. It moves to the tongue. It makes its way to the heart, which affects the whole being of a person and causes them to run from sin. But not just running aimlessly. No, it's a turning from sin to Jesus. It's a running away from sin, but a running to Jesus for his grace and his mercy. Isaiah 55 7 says this Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, 
and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly forgive. A great example of turning away from sin is seen in the prodigal son story, right? He shames his father by asking for the inheritance. He takes his money and he leaves his healthy family, his father who only loved him and cared for him. And he squanders all of his money on prostitutes, on sin, on the pleasures of this world until he runs out of all of it. Now he's desperate. And so he has no other choice but to be hired out to a farmer to watch over the pigs, to feed his pigs. And he finds himself being so hungry and starved that he eats out of the pods of the pigs. He eats the pig's food. You see, this is where your sin leads you. This is the result of sin. And it was right then and there, in the midst of his sin, that he finally saw it. He saw his sin. He came to himself. And he had sorrow over his sin. He, he couldn't believe what he had done. And he confessed out loud in Luke 15 that he had sinned against his father, that he had sinned against God. He felt shame for where his sin had brought him. And he hated his sin. And we know that he hated his sin because he got up from there. And he ran home. He turned from his sin. And he went home. He left the sin and the pig slop and returned to his good father. And when he had truly repented, when he came home, do you know how he was found? Did the father look at him, disgusting? Did he chastise him? Did he discipline him? Did he yell at him and tell him how bad of a person he was? What did he find when he truly repented? He found, that his, he found the loving embrace of his father. His father runs. He runs to him. He hugs him. He kisses him. He brings his robe and he puts the robe on. He gives him a ring. He gives him the ring and he brings him back into his home and throws a feast for him. You see, when you truly repent from your sin, when you turn from your sin and you run to Jesus, you will only be met with the loving embrace of his arms. You will only be met with, with, with grace and mercy. He will meet you, embrace you. He'll put his robe of righteousness upon you. He'll bring you into his home. He'll adopt you into his family. And he'll throw a feast for you for all the days of your life, the feast in heaven which we will sit at the marriage feast in Revelation 19 and we will sing praises of our great salvation, of our great God. This is the end of repentance. Repentance must lead, must always ends with coming to Jesus. Have you turned to Jesus? True saving faith always results in true repentance. Because when you repent, you also trust. And when you trust, you also turn from sin. Because you hate your sin. In order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus Christ and repent from your sin. And if you haven't done that, tonight is the night to do that. If you're listening to this right now, and you have not truly repented, repent, cry out for repentance, and God will give it to you. Pray that He would give you a heart, uh, that He would 
show you your sin, that you would feel sorry for it, that you would confess it, that he'd help you confess it, feel shame for it, hate it, and turn from it. Now, if you're a Christian and you're listening to this, repentance isn't just a one-time thing that gets you into heaven. No, Martin Luther says the whole life of a Christian is a life of repentance. We always repent. In fact, even now, I don't know how many years I've been saved, but even now, my repentance now is much deeper than it was when I first got saved. We always repent. We're always turning from sin. We're always trusting in Jesus Christ. Have you repented? Even looking back on this week and seeing the sins that you've committed, you've broken God's law, have you truly repented of your sin? Well, let Isaiah 55, 7 encourage you to do so. Let the wicked forsake, turn from their way, and the unrighteous man their thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he, what will happen? And he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly forgive. Students, God's holiness is why we must repent. And God's mercy is why we can repent. Let the mercy and grace of Christ lead you to repentance. Let his goodness lead you to repentance. Cry out to him. Come to Jesus and you will only be embraced. I pray that this good news of the gospel would become yours. Repent and believe in the gospel today. And watch God's transforming work begin to change you. Begin to make you more like Jesus. Repentance is a grace. It's a gospel medicine. And I pray that you would receive that medicine today and forevermore. Amen.